for parents, sometimes it's learning not to react and raise your voice. For kids I work with, it's not to get so angry right away and to take a minute and actually like have the privilege of deciding how you're going to react instead of it just being an impulse. Welcome to Raising Greatness, where we ask the questions every parent wants to know. I'm Ryan Adams, and on today's episode, we have Frankie Baghdad, a master's level educator and clinical social worker with over two decades of experience in education and mental health. Frankie is a popular public speaker and is a published author. Her first book, I Love My Kids, But I Don't Always Like Them, has won several awards and has spent weeks on the Amazon bestseller list. Join us as we discuss how to rewire unwanted programming in ourselves and our kids, how to deal with conflict and when to apologize, how to really know if your child has ADHD, how screen time is affecting our kids, and so much more. Frankie, I want to really thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. So what is FAB? So FAB is Frankie's Academic and Behavioral Consulting, um, a dream child of mine that I started a few years ago, consulting company to help me share all of the tips and tools I learned um, through my career in classrooms, in camp cabins, and working with parents. Wow. Okay. So behavioral consulting. What is that all about? Because I know a lot of parents and listeners right now are like, okay, we could definitely use some consulting with the behavior of our children. But uh, what does that typically (laughs) entail for you when you're consulting somebody on on behavior? Yeah, so I talk to a lot of parents who are just at their wit's end. They feel like they've tried so many different things. Um, They feel like their kids aren't listening to them or they're spending a lot of time yelling and that's not the parent they want to be. And most of their time parenting is in conflict. So, you know, just like my book said, it's so natural to feel that way and to feel frustrated. But if you're feeling like you're spending more time really not enjoying your parenting journey than you are, um, the balance is off. And I'm able to use a lot of the techniques that worked for me in the classroom throughout the years or ones that I used when I was part of a director team at an overnight camp and help them really understand the why behind the behavior, not just, hey, here's a good punishment. That's not always really helping us at all, but what's going on and helping them figure out how to talk it through with their kids. So what are some common then behavior, um, I guess, challenges that you're seeing that a lot of parents are encountering? So really the number one concern is just not feeling listened to. So there are kids out there who are, um, more apt to just say no, like that's their default answer. Uh, Can you help me with the dishes? Can you do this? Can you do your homework? No, no, no. And we have to sort of break that down and figure out where the communication barrier is. So, you know, I would say the most sensitive topic for parents is really not feeling listened to. And then there's things like meeting different needs in your own household. Um, I talked with a group of amazing parents last night, um, actually in Toledo a little bit from me here, and that was a big struggle. Sibling rivalry, of course, but also, you know, I have two kids or three kids or four kids. I had a woman there with 11 children, this awesome mom. They're all different humans. They need different things to be successful. How do I do that? How do I balance those needs? 
Okay, so so you um, touched on something that's kind of near and dear to my heart because on my journey of being a parent, it's forced me to take a long, hard look at the own crazy in my brain, you know, all the things that, you know, I almost the default programming that I inherited as a kid. And what I found is one of my defaults is no. So it, it's it's crazy to think about it, but it's like in, in business or in any sort of my life, it seems like my default first answer is always no. Even if I agree with it, I'll say no, but that's really awesome. Let's go ahead with it and I'm just like you know and a lot of people close to me have called me out on that where it's just that first reaction is no which obviously stifles a lot so where does that come from then where did where did I develop that from you know as um, a therapist as well because I'm lucky enough in my career to really be able to see things through both lenses as an educator as a therapist we know like research has shown us and we even have these amazing researchers that have looked at brain scans and we know that our brain is programmed to do certain things so your brain is programmed to say no first what we know that's really cool and really exciting is we can um fix that program. We can change it by practice, um, by learning to pause even before we react or answer. And that's so much of the work I do as a therapist. So for parents, sometimes it's learning not to react and raise your voice. For kids I work with, it's not to get so angry right away and to take a minute and actually like have a privilege of deciding how you're going to react instead of it just being an impulse. And we know through lots of practice and a ton of trial and error, because we don't know what's going to work for what human. Humans are complicated. That makes us all interesting. We can um, change that programming, so to speak. So you're telling me, so, so don't get so hung up on the why that's the default, but be encouraged and hopeful in the fact that you can rewire uh, any of that unwanted behavior, that default programming. We have it within us to do that. Yeah. I mean, the why is definitely important. I talk about that all the time. There's always a why behind behavior. Uh, people who are you know, behavior analysts and have all different kinds of training will tell you that it's typically communication in some form or another. So that is important. But yes, being hopeful is is key, that it doesn't have to stay that way forever. So a child whose default then is no, um, did they did learn that? Did they hear their parents say no a lot? Or is it something like, like what's a common, now obviously every individual is a little bit different and there's individualized circumstances, but in a broad stroke, what would be a common uh, reason why a child's default is no, as opposed to yes? So I've worked for years in the disability community. My, mm-hmm. my first master's is in special education. And certainly there are certain types of profiles that are going to be more predisposed to being argumentative or impulsive or even, you know, demand avoidant, we say. Um, so that could be it. And could it be something about, you know, how they're raised? Sure. And I don't mean to put a lot of... Um, guilt on parents. We have enough of that. (laughs) I promise it's not that easy to do that. However, kids are watching and we can be modeling. So one of the big things I work on with parents, and listen, it is hard for me. And my whole book is, there are stories about all the times I've messed this up. I'm honest. However, it's also taking a pause ourselves and not being, you know, explosive about demands and taking a moment. And if we don't do those things, because we're human and like all kinds of stuff just falls out of our mouths because that is the way we're programmed is then taking a step back and going back and apologizing to our kids. I I just talked about that recently um, on the radio. It ended up not being the topic I was brought there for, but it's such an important piece that we talked a lot about 
how valuable it is to apologize to our kids and show them um, our vulnerabilities and that we can repair when we make mistakes. Is there, I know with a lot of parents that there may be this, this, this fear that there's almost like a power struggle where, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to seem valuable. You don't want to seem like you mm-hmm. don't have all the answers. Um, a lot of ego obviously gets involved here. So is there sure. a constructive or a healthy way to apologize to your child or is it just the vulnerability is really the key? So I think you can hold limits as a parent. There are certainly decisions that are adult decisions. And I use that language all the time with my children. You know, I might validate that they're upset about something, but you know, it's my job to keep you safe. And sometimes I make decisions that I make on my own or with dad. Um, however, I think, yeah, it's, it, it could be just an opportunity to be open and honest. So I could sit my children down and I've done this many times and say, wow, like I did not like that last conversation. I'm really disappointed in myself that I raised my voice. That wasn't my intention. Let me tell you what's going on. Let me tell you what I'm frustrated about. And then you can tell them that, you know, you're frustrated because of their behavior. That's okay. Um, And that I shouldn't have yelled, right? Like no one Mm -hmm. made me yell. That was me. And I am frustrated. So what can we do together? So I'm not yelling. We're not fighting. It's both of us. So yes, you're taking responsibility, but you're still teaching and you're still holding your limits with your children that there are certain ways that you expect them to behave. So what I'm hearing here is is that um, that kind of mature way of apologizing, it, it almost serves two, two fronts. The first is that it releases a little bit of the pressure out of the situation where the child isn't going to be going back and thinking that they're a bad kid or that, you know, mm-hmm. mommy and daddy doesn't don't love them anymore or all these crazy stories that might be told. And then the other part is, is that you're also modeling how to actually behave in a sense of how to deal with conflict, how to apologize, how to, um, you know, your child is also seeing how to handle it when you're not don't have all the answers or when you're not in the right, which is which is kind of kind of interesting to think of. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a valuable tool. Um, My husband actually got the opportunity to hear me speak last night. I did a book talk I was um, sharing in Toledo, a neighboring state, and Mm -hmm. he never has that opportunity because we have three kids. You know, we're always dividing and conquering, but he did. And it was interesting. Um, He's in a totally different career. He's an engineer. Um, He's a business development guy. And he just went through a week-long intensive leadership training. And he said, this is so funny. So many things you talked about, I just heard about last week. So humans are humans, whether they're five-month-olds or (laughs) adults. And yes, we have to understand what is developmentally appropriate to expect. You're not going to expect a five-month-old to do something an eight-year-old's going to do or a 45-year-old man is going to do, but the principles remain the same, right? We want to treat with respect and try to meet each other's needs. So you you have pretty extensive experience working with neurodiverse um, children uh, of all ages. At what age does that start to um, kind of, I guess, show itself to the parents what are some of the um, differences when you're when you're working with uh, someone that's neurodiverse maybe we could just talk about that a little bit sure so we've learned so much in the last 10 20 years about um, really this umbrella of neurodiversity and those who are neurodivergent um, one of the main uh, types of profiles that we really talk about in this 
way is those who are autistic. And even our language has changed. So 20 years ago, when I start, uh, started out in special education, it was very big on person first language, someone, John, who is autistic. Now the autistic community, autistic adults said, hey, you know, we're not ashamed. It's part of our identity. Please refer to us as autistic. So even that has changed. So it's really an exciting time. In terms of when um, those sort of divergent brains might be identified, it can be very young. So pediatricians now are required in the United States, and it's similar, I know, in Canada, to do some screening as they are babies and toddlers, just seeing if um, children are meeting their developmental milestones. One of the big identifiers for those who may be autistic or end up with a speech and language disorder, disability, or um, is language. So we really look at how children are acquiring language. We have all kinds of benchmarks. And then we're also going to talk about motor skills, fine motor, which is our small skills, and gross motor, like crawling and sitting up. And there's a lot of really solid research out there, the intervention they get before age three can be super critical. Now, the good news is, even if a child's not identified before age three, and we have adults still being identified later in life, there are still different things that we can do to help um, just make life feel easier. And really, the new uh, research out there and what we're learning now from maybe a first generation of large numbers of autistic adults, just because even though it's not a new um, neurodivergent profile, we're learning more and more people are being identified, is sometimes it's not about changing the person or remediating skills. It's about accommodating and understanding. So there's still some, you know, concerns getting people who are autistic into the workforce and they have, you know, so many wonderful skills. We actually see a lot of um, superior intelligence even in this population. So there are some big companies doing great programs where they have people on staff who are experts in that kind of processing and able to give accommodations to have these wonderful people as part of their staffing. Now, is there a ideal career um, for someone that is uh, on the spectrum or uh, is it, there's so many different elements of being on the spectrum, I suppose that would lend to a different career, but is there something that you've seen common that, you know, a large organization where there really would be a fit for um, the vast majority of people on the spectrum? So we tend to see a lot of strength in the math and sciences, STEM engineering fields, and therefore um, there are some universities who have programs. Like here is a program for people who are identified as autistic, and we're learning what kind of accommodations those students need. While understanding this phrase, which I love, you meet an autistic person, you met one autistic person, right? Like, mm. just like you and I, there's going to be differences. However, there are some things that we notice as patterns. So, yes, that is definitely, I would say, the biggest um, broad field that we are seeing people um, with autism. But really, you could also find people who are autistic in any field. I'm part of some really interesting networking groups of autistic 
therapists and speech and language pathologists and educators in my own field, which has been really a great learning opportunity for me. And I'm sure you could find um, people who are autistic everywhere. And I'm hoping that as more and more, as we understand more about those types of brains and um, how to help them really do their best in different careers. So as you know, the years have gone on by is, are we finding more instances of autistic people in the in the world? Or is it just something that we're now better suited to recognize and label as okay, so this is something um, like is is that research out there? Is, is there something that is is this on the rise? Or is this something that's always been there for for people? And we're just recognizing it more? So there is some good research out there. We're still really early in the journey in terms of research and like longitudinal data. Um, so I, I think we're going to continue to learn more and more. It really looks like the pattern is showing us that it's more about identifying better than more incidences of autism. Um, you know, they say like, in the 70s, 16s and 70s, those types of um, processors were being called, you know, more like quirky kids or, hmm. you know, maybe some not nice names too. And they were struggling, but nobody knew why. And um, they were still around. So what's really fascinating, and I see this all the time in my work, is what's happening now is there are lots of parents who are having children identified as autistic. And when the psychologist is explaining, this is where your child does really well. This is where they really struggle and will need support. The parents are going, oh, that's me. That was me as a kid. And then they're going back and getting that official diagnosis, not because they even necessarily need support, but because it feels good to understand why they struggled and know, you know, some of it wasn't really their fault. It wasn't that they didn't work hard enough or try hard enough because we really want to get away from that narrative. They probably really needed different supports. Um, what's really interesting and what the data is showing is we're still missing a lot of people. So I would say when I first started in the field of education in the very early 2000s, the big conversation was, oh my gosh, like what's happening? Why are we identifying so many people as autistic? Like, is there something environmental that's causing autism? Now it's why can't we get people identified as autistic who really seem to be? There's some research showing um, there, there's some controversy in like the diagnostic manual that we use in the United States, which is really used throughout North America and many of the um, industrialized nations that, you know, the last edition was really based on data of people who already identified as autistic. So the sample was mostly male. So are we missing females? That's a big discussion now in the research community um, and, you know, neurological disorders. And, you know, if you're an adult who was missed because your school system didn't really have that understanding, you know, 20 years ago, can you be identified as an adult? I know in my community, which has wonderful mental health resources, when you compare us to the rest of the United States, we're still missing that. There's not a lot of people out there who are comfortable and skilled in evaluating adults. So it's interesting. I think it's sort of shifted now where we're more concerned that we might be missing people than overdiagnosing. That is interesting. And there's a lot to unpack there. So males being more likely to identify as being autistic, is that 
is that because like, why is that? <laughs> like, what are some of the theories as to why that might be? Um, and is the research showing that there is a genetic component to it, or is it just more of a stigma where um, men are more likely to to I guess put their hands up and say, yeah, sure, I'm autistic. Um, where does that come from? So what the trend is showing us, and I actually, this was my research project when I did clinical social work, okay, not, great. not that long ago, because sure. that was my um, pandemic hobby was getting a second master's degree. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> really what, what I found is it's about um, like gender norms and gender socialization. So girls are more encouraged and really pushed to be social. And whatever that means, social in a neurotypical way, which is how I explain people who don't have, you know, those neurodivergent brains. So girls tend to be better at what we call masking, like fitting in, um, assimilating. So they're not being identified. And one of the big um, characteristics that those who diagnose are looking for is social skills difficulties. So if you're able to sort of fake it and mask it, that may not show up. They may be um, forcing themselves to have eye contact, even though that tends to be a pretty universal difficulty for those who are autistic. And they may be, you know, mimicking others' social habits to fit in. So that's really what um, I kind of saw is a trend right now is those differences. They may also have um, just superior language skills than the boys who have the other autistic traits. And I'm not so sure whether that is going to be seen as biological or learned behavior. I think there's so much more um, to research <laughs> really in that area. So everything I saw, it sounds like, and these are really predictions and sort of sure. assumptions by researchers, but that maybe um, there is naturally more people who were born male who will be identified as autistic, but not to the degree we're seeing, um, that it should still even out more in order to really be accurate. But maybe in the end, there will be some more males. But now it's something, it's like a really striking difference. When I worked in special education, I some years had classes that were all male. Interesting. Um, and that's not really accurate. <laughs> sure. The eye contact um, or the lack of eye contact is interesting to me. I remember I was at a seminar years ago and they had you to a stranger just basically sit and make eye contact for I think it was like a minute straight, just even mm. 60 seconds or 30 seconds. And mm -hmm. I was blown away with one, how intimate, how uncomfortable, how mm -hmm. there was just – it's we often just make eye contact in a fleeting type of way and, and it's sure. like – it's, it's intense though. And so I'm kind of curious why, um, and obviously this is all kind of speculative theories, but why is it that most autistic uh, kids or, or people in general have difficulty with eye contact and why is that one of the indicators? You know, it's, it sort of goes into this whole category of like social skills deficits, which is the way we used to mm. talk about it. And honestly, the way I talked about it, like even maybe within the last six months. And the more that I've learned from, you know, people I know who are autistic, um, students I've worked with and campers I've worked with and adults I've worked with, I started to think about it differently. Maybe it's not a deficit. Maybe it's a difference. Maybe it's a style. Maybe we all have social styles. So there is a lot written 
by the autistic community about how uncomfortable that eye contact is. It's not that their eyes mechanically can't zone in on another person. And, you know, really well-meaning professionals used to actually like gently like move somebody's head, you know, so they were looking and really demand it. But what we're realizing is that the stress that that causes, and then it really impairs their ability to be successful in so many other ways. So, you know, what do I do as a professional? You know, some people are going to have trouble understanding that and being in that level of acceptance. So sometimes we teach kids little hacks, right? Like, you know, stare at their their um, mm. forehead or just look forward. And, you know, if that's comfortable and that, then everybody kind of <laughs> gets what they need. You don't have to sure. stare into their eyes. I mean, that can even be intense to, to me, like, oh, like talking about, right? <laughs> I've been in those conferences um, where those, you know, well-meaning trainers are trying to show us human connection. And I'm like, oh, my God, how long is this? Um, so, you know, there are little workarounds, but it's really it has me thinking about so many things I've taught throughout the years. Like, okay, children, let's stand on the carpet and, you know, put on your listening ears and eyes forward and everybody cross your legs. Well, it, do I need all of that? Do they need all of that to be successful? So it, it has us looking at all of these things that were always, you know, our norms and wondering if we really need to be um, strict about all of those to meet our objectives, right? Does somebody really have to maintain eye contact to be a good communicator? I don't know. Have we asked that question enough? Probably not. Mm. And, and and what it means to communicate is certainly changing in this day and age as well. Um, in a, in a yes. very quick uh, and. Uh, I would highly, I'm just going to take a pause here and, and suggest any listener out there, if you haven't done this exercise that Frankie and I are talking about, I highly suggest that with your partner or with your child, mm-hmm. put a timer on for 30 seconds to a minute and just stare into each other's eyes, unwavering, unblinking. Well, I mean, you can blink, but just just, <laughs> just allow yourself to stare mm-hmm. and, and not to get too philosophical or psychological here, but it often does end in some sort of tears because of this desire to be seen and actually seeing another mm-hmm. human being. And it's just like, you know, the, the old cliche the the gateway to the souls through the eyes there's something powerful there so if you've never experienced it definitely uh definitely do it because uh it's it's intense that's for sure Mm -hmm. okay frankie you also do work a lot with adhd as well and i know Mm -hmm. that when i was um in school so i graduated high school in the year 2000 so i was going through elementary and junior high that was really when a lot of ritalin and a lot of adhd was really just kind of seemed like it was um coming to the forefront for the first time how have things how, how has that evolved uh, what do we now know about ADHD? What's the percentage of, of kids? Is there also a correlation with screen time and distraction with video games and exercise? And I'm, I'm sure there's a whole lot we can unpack here, but I'm kind of curious on that side. Yes. So again, like research in terms of what causes ADHD, um, it, it, that's still out there. We're not seeing any research um, that really shows a clear correlation between screen time smartphones, gaming, and um, increased prevalence of ADHD. So that is exciting. You know, when I talk to parents about parenting, screen time comes up all the time. Quality of screen time, amount of screen time. Um, And while there are some studies out there that do show a positive correlation between screen time and increased anxiety and depression, what they're not telling us is they're taking kids who already have a significant amount of screen time. Like it would be unethical since we don't really know what it does to kids to um, take test subjects and say, okay, sit here and don't 
you know, look away from the screen for 20 hours. So we can't mm. test that way. They're already taking kids who are doing it. So were these children already depressed or anxious and using screen time to escape, right? So, you know, that's what I really rely on some fantastic researchers out there. That's not my area of specialty. Um, there's some science journalists out there that are really helping to debunk some of these parenting myths. And that's what I've been reading lately. Um, is there a to, universal, yeah. sorry, sorry for you, but is there a universal kind of agreed upon age that like if you could in this day and age, which is hard, but if you could wave a magic wand and not allow your infant, again, my, my son is almost six months now, and we try so hard to not let him look at any screens, mm-hmm. and it's crazy. Right. As soon as that TV oh. or something's on, his, his yeah. head just like whips sure. around. Like, no. Is there, a, is there an age that is kind of like if you could hold out for 16 months, a year, two years? Like, Is there any research that kind of shows that if you can hold out for screen time as long as possible, there is a positive correlation for focus or, or is there kind of an agreed upon age? So again, it's tricky because they're not forcing babies to have screen time and then see mm. if it affects them. Sure. Um, what I've noticed is the American Academy of Pediatrics definitely has guidelines on their site. They really haven't changed much um, since I started raising kids. My oldest is almost 16. What I've noticed is how we're using them has changed. So, you know, we've had the same amazing pediatrician for almost my kid's whole life. And I remember, you know, we go in every year for our um, yearly visits. Now they're older. It's not every two months. And (laughs) they ask some questions, right? Like, do you have any friends at school? Um, they, They screen for depression and anxiety. I mean, we put an incredible amount um, responsibility on our pediatricians to screen for all kinds of things. And then they ask about screen time. And it used to be, so, you know, is your screen time about two hours? You know, they would give them an amount and the kids would look at me like, what should I answer? Right. And <laughs> right. I'm like, mom, should I be honest? And, and yeah, we're exactly. honest, right? Line and, here, line. Right, right. right. Like, uh, <laughs> and now, you know, once the pandemic hit and it, we were in similar circumstances here. Um, I feel like even, you know, Ontario, you had some more lockdowns than we did. But once we got back into the pediatrician's office, when they were allowing well visits again, I could see her stumbling and saying, so let's talk about screen time. And she would pause for a minute and say, like, do you sometimes turn off screens and get outside? And do you wear a helmet when you ride your bike? Right? Like the narrative changed. So we started to be a little more realistic about what that means. And, you know, not all screens are created equal. We use screens for education. We use it to communicate. Um, You know, you could have grandparents in a different country or a different state. They were really big and we've realize how important they are given what we've just been through as um, a world, not even just a country (laughs) or a region um, and how those things can be so helpful. So, okay. So for babies, right? Like I think the American Academy of Pediatrics still recommends no screen time under a certain age. However, what's that screen time functioning as? Like, does that give you or your partner time to shower And how important is that to you for your mental health? So if you stick, you know, tight to that screen time and you don't allow any screen time, are you like in a good place emotionally? That's important. It's important just for you as who you are. 
but how does that affect your parenting? It certainly does, right? So, you know, if you're not getting that shower and that 10 minutes of peace where everyone's happy, are you able to not yell? So I think those things really need to be talked about as well. And I'm not even sure if that was the original question, but it's really something that's been on my mind a lot. And it, and it makes sense. I mean, it's listen, everything we're talking about right now is layered and complicated. It's not just a clear uh, yes or no. And that's why it's good to have these conversations there, because um, yeah. there's a lot of still science that is developing, so to speak. Um, yes. and, it, and you bring up a great point, which is, you know, if how not all screens are, are being created equal, like to deprive your grandparents or your parents uh, the chance to see their grandchild or, or the child mm-hmm. to see, mm-hmm. you know, th- their grandparents. I mean, obviously that doesn't make a lot of sense. So it's, it's kind of being, I guess, intentional and selective with the screen time. I, I, I suppose what I'm learning as a very young parent is being conscious and intentional with what you're doing is really all we can do. Um, it's when you start getting unconscious and you just kind of, you know, just not really being intentional with what you're doing, that's when potentially you can get into some trouble because, you know, um, you're not really paying attention to what's happening and then the long-term consequences that might be having an effect. Yeah, I think that's so true. So it's watching your kids and knowing who they are. And if all of a sudden things change and you're like, huh, you know, I notice they're really grumpy when I don't make them turn off the TV for two hours. Okay, you have your answer. But, you <laughs> know, you I know my kid, like, if I don't, you know, tell them... Uh, limit screen time after school, eventually they turn it off because they want to play outside. You have your answer there too. So I'm really big on that creating a problem that's not there. And I think as parents, um, it's such an intense role (laughs) and we have so much noise coming at us, you know, from social media and well, I think it's wonderful. I certainly like that I can share my content that way. It's a great way to connect. It's a lot. And to filter through Mm -hmm. it is really, really tough. And you know, if it's not a problem, it's not a problem. So, you know, last night and when I do parenting programs, I always have people raise their hand and they may be doing something in their house. It's not the way I recommended it. And they say, oh, but I'm doing it this way. Like, is that bad? What do you think? And I look at them and I say, how's it going? Well, actually, it's been really helpful. Great. (laughs) I love it. You have your answer. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, good. Good I'll write that down. That sounds like a good idea. (laughs) So, okay. So, so look, going back then to ADHD. So mm-hmm. is there, is there anything that we can do with, with our, like, like, first of all, I'm assuming we're seeing that increasing because uh, it seems to be just anecdotally that it's, it's increasing amongst kids. So is there anything that we can do with young children or infants to help, you know, help them with their focus? And then is there anything that we can do? I mean, obviously there's a lot of, of pharmaceutical solutions and, and drugs that can kind of help here. Um, leaving those aside, is there anything in your work that you've seen either tips and tricks early on and to help a child learn to focus? And then if they are showing some some challenges with focus a little bit later on in like maybe junior high, is there anything that they can do um, that ne- doesn't necessarily have to do with pharmaceuticals? So focus is interesting. Um I think still we're probably missing people who should be identified with ADHD. While are there people misdiagnosed? Sure, because there's no, again, it's not black and white. There's no blood test or throat culture. It's not an easy (laughs) diagnosis. So I do recommend if, you know, parents aren't sure to get more information, you could go to your pediatrician, um, you know, someone like me who's a therapist, I can give a few questionnaires and diagnose, but I also like to get to know the child 
But a thorough evaluation is really helpful. For example, anxiety, one of the symptoms can be lack of focus, because if you really have clinical anxiety or even situational anxiety because you're going through something really tough, it takes a lot of that brain space. And you can all of a sudden forget to go to appointments and be unfocused and forget to turn your homework in. I just did a whole week... um, in the United States, October was um, ADHD Awareness Month. So I did a whole uh, bunch of writing about the anxiety and ADHD correlation. Now, we know that about 50%, our, our CDC is showing 50% of adults diagnosed with ADHD also have anxiety. And kids, it's somewhere between 20 and 30%. So we know that it's common to have both. But we also know that it can be stressful to know that your focus is not where it needs to be. So are there things we can do to help our children learn how to focus and be organized and give them those executive functioning skills? Absolutely. And I think all kids can benefit from that. I don't think it would necessarily change um, an ultimate diagnosis about ADHD if it's there, because that's really a neurological um, difference that we're not going to get rid of it. Um, but we certainly can teach strategies to make it easier and teach them to advocate for what they need. There is definitely um, lots of writing and talking out there about how our world is so crazy busy and we're so overscheduled. And I've heard people say things like, are we raising like the ADHD generation? My answer is no, but are we raising a uh, generation that thinks that they have to be able to be on their phone and their tablet and their computer and do a podcast at the same time? Yes. (laughs) And should we be careful of that? Absolutely. So um, I always think that organizational skills, executive functioning skills, which are time management and emotional regulation and understanding how to communicate, all of those things should be taught at school. And it's really exposing kids to all different ways of doing it. So as a teacher, and I was always sort of like the support teacher, like maybe running a resource room or as a consultant, a a teacher in science might say, okay, every child needs a one inch binder and to punch holes in all of their papers. And this is how we stay organized. And I was always like, no, that's how you stay organized. (laughs) I'd rather a teacher say, here are four different ways that my students have organized during the year. Come look at them, see what might work for you. I think that kind of skill is so valuable. I wish we could spend more time in schools doing that. Because what do we do as adults? Like, I'm not sitting here and saying, oh, what did my eighth grade teacher tell me to do again? No, I'm now, you know, searching apps and technology, and maybe I'll go back to like, just some post-it notes. I'm going to just try things until I figure out how to get to my appointments on time. And I am, I have ADHD. I was diagnosed in third grade, which was really lucky because again, like women are not diagnosed as much. And in the eighties, it didn't happen much. So you know, as an adult, I I can just find out what works for me. So if we start that process earlier, I do think um, it would probably cut down on some heartache and misdiagnosis. And it would help everyone, regardless of whether they have any sort of clinical diagnosis with impaired focus, because we are a distracted world. (laughs) I, I, I love that idea where you give the child options. 
I don't think I've been, well, I know I haven't been um, officially diagnosed with ADHD, but I do know that I'm, that I have a problem with authority. So just having a teacher tell me that this is the way that you have to use this binder, I just naturally would push back and be like, no, you can't tell me what to do. And, and, and that's deep, right. and that's for a different conversation. But the idea to give, you know, four different options, um, because now you're getting enrollment and you're in the child is taking ownership because they're one, yeah. they're flexing their decision-making um, abilities, but then they're really going to own the decision because they chose that way which um i think that's a really smart way to just a lot of decisions in life is to give them options uh, fantastic oh, yes. okay so you talk a lot about learning to love our brains and you know we've all got um, our own unique flavor of crazy how do we do that how do, how do we learn to love our brains you know it's so much easier actually as an adult and as as a student because we get the opportunity, hopefully, to do what we're good at. So for me, really, the key to learning to love my brain was being an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. um, it was really learning what I was good at, even if that meant that I kept making a lot of zigs and zags in my career and not comparing myself to the person who was successful next to me, that I could be successful in my own way. So like, I'll give you an example, you know, in about you know, eight years ago, I was in a job that was wonderful for me in a lot of ways and not in many ways. And I had a lot of pressure in my head that I needed to stay in that job. Because if you looked at my resume, I stayed everywhere for like two to four years. And I was thinking, oh boy, like I've been in interviews, I've been on hiring committees. That is not what you do to show that you are a dedicated, you know, professional. And then I realized that's how that person was successful. I was ready to move on because I'm a quick learner and I like challenge and I like novelty. And, and for me, that led me to entrepreneurship. And actually, speaking of research, there's some really good research out there about um, how ADHD brains are disproportionately end up in entrepreneurship, probably for some of the reasons you like you talked about, like not the authority thing definitely plays in, but also because then I can just accommodate myself constantly here. And it's not without frustration. I definitely have moments where I'm like, oh man, like I did all the right things and I still forgot to do that task. And I'm annoyed that that happened and I feel bad about myself. But I also um, take, a take time daily to recognize when I'm doing well and it's awkward and feels strange, but I do that. Like I have to praise myself. So I know while I may, you know, set four different timers and ask my husband to remind me and tell my friend I have a meeting at one every once in a while, I'm still not going to go to that meeting at one, no matter what I do, because I'm having an anxious day and my ADHD and they, it just doesn't happen. But at the same time, I'm going to sit down and write a chapter of a book faster than any other person I know. So, you know, it's pluses and minuses. Um, for me, every time I have a struggle with my brain just not allowing me to do the thing I want to do, which is a major ADHD trait, like, you know what you need to do, you know what it needs to look like, but you just can't get it done. I recognize that if I didn't have that struggle, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be able to write about it. I wouldn't be able to teach about it. I wouldn't have the career I have. So it's it's acknowledging where it's tough and acknowledging what we do well. Um, you know, I wrote this blog post a while back, the top 10 reasons why I appreciate my ADHD brain. And it was interesting. Um, out of all places, it was shared the most on LinkedIn which, you know, is supposed to be very formal. Like that was a weird place for it to be shared. So I thought that was really interesting. 
I also had some comments that were really not positive. Like, stop saying ADHD is a superpower. It invalidates how hard it is. And I really had to think about that. Um, And I had to explain myself. Like, I've known this about myself for decades. So for me, that is where I am. If you're just learning it about yourself, it can be frustrating. And you can't really, you know have the why me moment. That's all important too. (laughs) But I've been through that. So I think sometimes, you know, I've been in so many different interviews and job interviews, that classic question, like, what is your um, best trait? And what is like the most difficult trait? For me, it's they're the same. And I hear that all the time with people. They really can be the same and they can have, you know, the, the struggles and the rewards can be all in the same. That is a very brave answer to give in a job interview. <laughs> What's your biggest strength? Uh, well, it's actually my ADHD. Right, <laughs> I think that's is. a very brave yeah. answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's why I have to work for myself, you know? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, I I think that's um, that's important for people to really kind of digest is that, you know, all of the unique kind of quirks and the makeups of our brain is what uniquely makes us us. And a big part of this journey is the story that we tell about ourselves and about what's happening in our lives. And, you know, we're all storytellers. And, you know, the phrasing, the words we use, the labels, the way we're telling the story, it makes such a big impact impact on the way that we feel about ourselves and the way that we then, um, you know, the action and just this trickle down effect. So um, I'm with all due respect to whoever the commenter was on LinkedIn. I disagree in the sense that I think it's awesome if you can rebrand any sort of challenge or difficulty you have as a superpower because it allows you to own it and then it uh, changes the narrative really which uh, kind of gives you the power back as opposed to mm-hmm. it having power over you you have power over it which I think is yes. it's just paramount mm-hmm. yeah absolutely awesome okay my last question is, so when we're looking at, um, you do a lot of work with brains and a lot of work with just a behavioral and developmental, um, what percentage, if you were to just, I'm not going to hold you to this, um, I know you don't have a textbook in front of you and I don't even think the research is there, but how much of our brain is set when we're born and how much of it is learned um, and what percentage do you think is, you know, kind of that genetic kind of set, like this is just our born personality and this is, you know, something that was trained or learned behavior. Hmm. Wow, that is interesting. Um, Well, I'll tell you what I see in my own little lab school here with my three kids. Um, (laughs) Because in like in fundamental ways, they're exactly who they were the moment they were born. Um, But there's certainly so much growth. So like my really anxious kid um, was showing signs of anxiety as a baby. And I didn't call it that then, but they were easily overstimulated and easily uncomfortable and had trouble separating from me. And they still, you know, unfortunately struggle with that. However, um, as they get to know themselves, they can, you know, eliminate triggers and know how to comfort themselves and know what they need and know when to ask for a break. So it certainly um, gets better. And it, it, they learn to accommodate themselves, which is so much about how I appreciate my ADHD brain is I know how to work with it now. So I think it's like a yes and. Yes, we are who we are. And as we learn more about ourselves, (laughs) we can really, you know, learn to use our strengths to overcome the parts of us that, you know, make things tricky. 
What advice would you give to a parent that's really trying to understand the unique way that their child thinks and interacts with the world and, and their little personality? Like, is it just observation? Is there, is there other tips and tricks? Like, is there, is there a certain way that you can really empower a parent to, um, to learn about their child? Yes, observation and getting to know them is key, but don't hesitate to reach out for help. So again, you know, I have a master's in special education. I'm a clinical therapist. I am not my my children's teacher or therapist. Um, mm. In fact, my teenagers sometimes say, stop. I don't want you to be my therapist. I want you to be my mom. And I really pause and internalize that when they say it because it's important. Um, and I get help when, when I need it too. So an outside perspective is really important. Listen to your kids' teachers. Even at first, if you think they're totally off, take a minute, you know, check your defensiveness at the door, listen to what they have to say. If it doesn't sound right, like get a second opinion, you know, you can trust your instincts, but you have to be open to it. You know, years ago, one of my kids has a borderline birthday for the way we register in public school, and he was in a preschool class with kids the same age. So I could tell this teacher had had five of the similar conversations during parent-teacher conferences. Like, you know, I'm not so sure your child should, you know, start the five-year-old school, the kindergarten program this year or next year. And, you know, I was expecting that conversation. Maybe it's because it's my field. I don't know. So I went, oh, that's so interesting. Like, tell me more. And I could see on this teacher's face that nobody responded that way. And I got all this amazing information because I was so open to hearing it. Had I responded with, you know, anger and frustration, that probably would have been the end of the conversation. So listen to the people around you who have different expertise reach out for help. Um, there's no, there should not be any stigma involved, right? I, I talked about taking my kids to their well visits for their medical health. I think we should all have well visits for our mental and emotional health. To me, there's no downside to going to a therapist for yourself or with your child. And after a few visits, the therapist says, I think your child's doing great. They have great coping skills. Call me when you need me. Wonderful. Um, I know wait lists are long and it's incredibly frustrating but things change. So put yourself on a bunch of them. And, you know, it's happened to me where I've been told with a specialist, like, oh, it's going to be eight months and I get a cancellation. Mm. Um, but, you know, get help. Parenting is so complicated. And I always joke, like I, I wrote the book that says I love my kids, but I don't always like them because I want to pe <laughs> people to know that if I have two decades of experience working with challenging children and I feel that way sometimes about parenting, then everyone can. It's okay um, because it is incredibly challenging and, of course, like the most rewarding. Frankie, you're, you're an author, you're a consultant, you're a therapist. For those <laughs> listeners that maybe want to get in touch with you or find out a little bit more about what you do, what's the best way for them to find you? So the best way is I am on all the social media channels, and I have my website. Um, the most difficult thing is spelling my name, but it's Frankie, F-R-A-N-K-I. I'll blame my parents for that. And um, Baghdad, B-A-G-D-A-D-E. And I blame my husband's family for that one. Um, but that is my FrankieBaghdad.com. Everything is linked there. Um, you can find, you know, I try to give as much uh, free resources as I can and connect people with ideas and places to go in their own communities. And, you know, you can also uh, read about my services there as well. 
Awesome. Frankie, as parents, how do we raise great kids? How do we raise? Well, I'll tell you, um, I think it is being comfortable with failing. So, you know, the whole fail forward, like philosophy, just keep trying new things. If something's not working, don't stubbornly, you know, stay on that hamster wheel, get off, wake up, dust yourself off and try something else until you figure out what feels good and what's working for you. Absolutely beautiful. Wealth of information. Frankie, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you.